Good morning. It certainly is wonderful to be here with you this morning. I am grateful for the, the prayer on my behalf. Um, song service was wonderful. I pray the things that I present to you will be beneficial, they'll be edifying, and they'll be encouraging you to you this morning. They will uh, lift you up in some way. Before we begin, ask a question this morning. How is your relationship with God? How is your relationship developing with God? I know I said we wanted to talk about being encouraged this morning, and from the title it doesn't really appear that way, but that's my objective, to talk about discipline in our discipleship. Discipline is defined as a rule or system of rules governing conduct or an activity. This morning, I want us to think about our discipline in our Christian life, our discipline in our conduct. Many years ago, I had a coworker that he was into working out. He ran marathons. He did CrossFit. He did these Spartan runs, these crazy 5Ks where they run through fire and all this stuff. Took very good care of himself. One day we were at lunch and someone asked him a question and asked him what his motivation was. How he found the motivation every day to keep going to the gym, to keep working out. His answer was awesome. It was very humbling. And he was very humble in his presentation of his answer. He said, I don't want to sound arrogant, but I'm beyond motivation. It's just a part of who I am. And I found that absolutely fascinating. It was just a part of who he was. And I was reminded of that conversation a few months ago when Justin was talking about a book that he read. And the author talked about motivation and how that your motivation fails us so many times. And the reason is, is where do we look for motivation? Motivation, oftentimes we look towards external sources, things outside of us. When discipline, and we talk about discipline, we're talking about internalizing things. So that is just a part of your life. Now, I'm going to be honest with you this morning. I'm not the foremost knowledge on discipline. <laughs> I'm not the one who's going to go write a book about discipline. I don't always have proper discipline in my own personal life, hence the need for this study. But I think that we all have different things that we're disciplined in. If we, if we examine our lives, no matter how odd it is, there's things that we're disciplined in. You know, one of the things I'm very disciplined in is the care and management of my socks. You think that's a joke. It's not. When I was a young boy, it always seemed like I had mismatched socks, holes in my sock, a sock missing. And so I committed a long time ago when I got to the point when I could manage my own sock and their upkeep, they were going to be well taken care of. And back when I used to work in the funeral home and I wore the different colored socks, you know, my drawer was organized. They were organized by color, even by shades of color. They had to be in their proper order. I folded them a very specific ways. And to be honest, when my wife would do my socks and she would fold them for me, I would undo them and fold them my way. I quit doing that because I realized that that's very rude. <laughs> Over the years, much to the chagrin of my wife, I've gone back to my roots and I've started wearing cowboy boots. So I always pretty much buy white socks. But I only buy one brand of socks, and those are Puma socks. 
I have a reserve of socks in case there is a sock catastrophe or a sock something. And I was looking in my closet this week, this weekend. I have 24 pairs of sock on standby. That at any moment I blow a hole in a sock, I can throw, the, throw that pair of socks out and I can go get a new set. To be honest, if, if I'm being honest in my craziness, I can go about two and a half months without ever having to wash my socks. I still have my sock bag from Boys Ranch. Each day my socks go in that dirty sock bag. My socks are not allowed to be washed with any other article of clothing. They're not allowed to be dried with any other article of clothing. As a matter of fact, most times I'll wash my socks myself just to make sure that that doesn't happen. Very disciplined in my socks. <laughs> After this lesson, I would encourage you to go hug my wife's neck because that's the craziness that she lives with every day. No matter how odd it is, how crazy or Simple it is, but I think we all have things that we can look at in our lives and go, you know, I'm, I am disciplined in that regard. And I believe that whenever we look at those things that we're disciplined in, those things that we take good care of, we can apply those very same things to our spiritual life. And this morning, there's three principles when it comes to spiritual godly discipline that I think that everything else flows from. And those three principles are, are simple, simple to say, not necessarily do, but those three principles are commitment, transformation, and consistency. And I want us to look at these three principles this morning. You know, last week, Justin gave a lesson about, about commitment. I told him afterwards, I said, man, you torpedoed my whole first point. But it's important that we understand commitment. In my older age, I've noticed that more and more people are willing to go back on their word or to find at the most basic or simple of reasons to get out of a commitment. And I don't believe that it's a generational thing. I believe mankind has always been that way. Whenever you go all the way back to Israel and you look at what God said to them through Moses as he was there on Mount Sinai, he told him, he said, I will be your God and you're my, you'll be my people. And the people said, let it be so. They committed to God. But you read the history of Israel, you read the history of Judah. What did they consistently do? They went back on that commitment. That's been a problem with mankind for as long as we've existed. Going back on our commitment. In Psalms chapter 15 David begins there asking in verse 1, it's only about five verses, he asks, Who shall abide in thy tabernacle? Who shall dwell in thy holy hill? And he gives lists some characteristics of those that will abide in the, in the tabernacle or those that will dwell in the holy hill. One of those, he says, In whose eyes a vile person is condemned, but he that honoreth them that fear the Lord, he that sweareth to his own hurt and changeth not. David is saying there, the person that makes a commitment, even if it's to his own hurt, and still honors it, that's the type of person that abides in the tabernacle. That's the type of person that dwells in the holy hill. God took commitment very seriously, and we should too. 
Whenever we say we are committed to Jesus Christ, we're committed to being his disciple, that's all parts of it. Not just the ones that make us feel good, not just the ones that are convenient for us, but that's all parts of us. That includes prayer, study, fellowship, worship. All of those things are included in that, being a disciple of Jesus Christ. In the book of Malachi, Malachi is reject, uh, rebuking uh, by God the people of Judah. With the priests leading the way, the people of Judah had failed to keep their covenant with God. They had cast his, his law to the side. They disrespected him. They dishonored him. They took sacred things and they made them simple. But the most egregious of these was the fact that they were divorcing their wives so that they could go marry pagan wives. And God has a very serious rebuke specifically for the priests in chapter 2. He opens chapter 2 by saying this commandment is for the priests. And he goes on to say in verse 2, If you will not hear and you will not obey, well, excuse me, will not lay it to heart to give glory unto my name, saith the Lord of hosts, I will even send a curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. Yeah, I've cursed them already because you do not lay it to heart. The word, the phrase there, lay it to heart, means be obedient. He's telling them if you will not listen and obey there's problems, and I'm going to cause problems for you. He wanted them to be committed in their responsibility of taking care of the law. He wanted them to be committed in their responsibility and being guides for the other people and listening and instructing in God's way. He goes on in verse 5 to say this, My covenant was with him of life, and peace, and I gave to them to the for fear wherewith he feared me and was afraid before my name. The he and the him there he's referring to is Levi. I sound like, feel like this is really loud. Okay. <laughs> Maybe it's just me. The, the him, he and the him that he's referring there is Levi. You go all the way back to Genesis and this, one of the sons of Israel and Levi who would become the lineage of the priesthood. And he's talking about these wonderful things about Levi and what he was. Ultimately, that he was committed to revering God. And he's rebuking the priesthood here, and he's saying, you've lost your reverence for God. You've lost your awe for God. You're no longer committed to revering God before the people of, it, before the, before the people of Judah. He goes on to say in verse 6, The law of truth was in his mouth, and iniquity was not found in his lips. He walked with me in peace and equity, and did not turn many away from excuse me, and did turn many away from iniquity. For the priest's lips should keep knowledge, and they should seek the law at his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. He rebuked them because they weren't committed to righteousness. They weren't committed to righteous living. He rebuked them because they were not properly representing God. He says there, the lips should keep knowledge. It was their job to instruct in God's will. It was their job to give God's people guidance. And God is rebuking them for failing to do this. 
Now you might wonder, ask yourself why I'm going all the way back to the book of Malachi and looking at the Levitical priesthood concerning commitment. In 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9, it says, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people, that you should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. This wasn't written to the priesthood. This was written to you and I as disciples of Jesus Christ. With Jesus Christ being crucified on the cross, that old Levitical priesthood went away. And Paul said, or Peter says, now you are the priesthood. If you go read the book of Hebrews chapter 6, 7, and 8, he talks about Christ being the high priest. And he says, but you are now the priesthood. Could the same thing be said of us as was said to the priesthood in Malachi? You're no longer listening and obeying. You're no longer reverencing God. You're no longer living a righteous life. You're no longer representing God as His people. Because that's the commitment that God expects from us. If we look at being a disciplined person, you always have to be committed to whatever that discipline is. In this case, it's being a disciple of Christ. And if I'm going to be a disciple of Christ, it's one that says that I have the proper respect and obedience for His will. It's one that says I have the proper reverence for who He is and what He has done. It's one that shows that my life is living a righteous life according to His will because I represent the gospel for which He died. One of the greatest examples we see in the Old Testament to commitment is David. You know, David from a very young age was committed to God. One of my favorite stories of David is whenever he's going to take his brother's food while they're in battle. And this is where Goliath is coming out. And he makes his proclamation and makes his challenge towards Israel. And David hears this and he's furious that nobody's stepping up to the plate. He says, who is this heathen? Who's this guy that's talking against God? And he can't believe nobody's stepping up to the plate. David, whose stature is described to us as as relatively small, he's so committed to the Lord that he's willing to go out and do battle with this person, which nobody else would do. That was just the beginning of David's life. Whenever you can look out throughout all of David's life, he was always committed to God. That didn't mean that he had falterings or that he failed God. But he was committed to God. Which is why God gave him that title that we oftentimes reference that he was a man after his own heart. Because that was based upon his commitment to God and his plan. The question this morning is, is where is our commitment? Let's be honest. We have many things that we are committed to. We have... Daily commitments that we have to make. We have jobs. We have children. We have families. We have to put food on the table. All of those things have to be acknowledged, but at the end of it, or at the, 
at the end of all of it, where is our commitment and our relationship with God and developing ourselves as a better, stronger, more disciplined disciple? Do we make time for that? Or is it just an afterthought? You know, when I was asking myself those questions as I was going through this study, I, I kind of was kicking myself around a little bit. And I think we all do that from time to time. We realize maybe my commitment's not necessarily where it should be. I've got these other areas in life that I'm pretty good at. I may have some things that I'm pretty strong at. But there's this area that I need development in. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's proper self-examination. It's a matter of what we do when we examine ourselves. Transformation. There are two principles to transformation. The first principle is that God through Jesus Christ has made redemption available through the blood of the cross for all mankind. That's the first principle of transformation. In Matthew chapter 6 and verse 10, Christ teaching the disciples to pray there, he says, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, the breadth of this prayer includes his kingdom coming not just to you, but your family, to all societies. And what's at the root of this statement is that God is not interested in superficial change. God is not interested in improvement projects. The reality is, is that Jesus didn't die so that we could have an improved situation. That's not what he died for. If that was the case, the apostles would have had a great life without affliction, without suffering. That's not why Jesus Christ died. He died for your sins. He died for your redemption. He died so that you could become more in his likeness. In Philippians chapter 1, Paul talks about a lot of things. He's talking a bit about his transformation. But there in verse 21, he says there, For me to live, <laughs> excuse me, for me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Later on in verse 23, he says, For I'm at a straight betwixt two. That he wanted to depart, which would be in a better place. He concludes that in verse 24 by saying, To abide with them in the flesh was more needful for the church at Philippi. He goes on in verse 27 to say this, Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. Here's what Paul's expectation was for the church at Philippi and for you and I today. He said, Let your conduct be as becometh of the gospel. Whether I'm in your presence or whether I'm not in your presence. That when I hear of things going on in your life, that your conduct is becoming of the gospel. Paul expected the church at Philippi to transform to a point where whether he was there or not, they were conducting themselves in a manner in which they should. Isn't that what we want for our children? 
Let me ask you this, parents. When your children act out when you're not around, say when you're, they're over at grandparents' house or friend's house or school, and they get in trouble, is the discipline harder? Is the measures that you take Harder so that they know that they need to conduct themselves whether you're there or not in the right way. That was the expectation of Paul for the church at Philippi and should be the expectation for us. He goes on in verse 5 to say, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. In verse 8 he says, And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. This is the reason for your transformation. Because Jesus Christ transformed himself. He took himself out of all the glories of heaven, He made himself a lowly man, a humble man, a poor man, so that he could be sacrificed upon a cross. So that he could be murdered by the very creation that he created. It is our reasonable service. It is our reasonable response to transform ourselves. Which leads to the second point of transformation, or the second principle of transformation. In Romans chapter 12 and verse 1, it says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service, and be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Paul said, it is your reasonable service. And our second principle of transformation is this. At the core of redemption is the transformation of individuals in Christ. Because of what Jesus Christ did, Him transforming Himself to be a sacrifice, it is our reasonable service, it is a reasonable calling unto us that we transform ourselves. Western religion tends to teach that it's okay or tends to preach that we have a sweet and loving God that is happy with our compromise, if you will. That is happy and just wants to make us comfortable and wants to make us happy. And the reality is, is that He's a God of love, but He's a God that wants us to transform. To become more in the likeness of His Son, who sacrificed Himself for your salvation. Paul said, that is your reasonable service. When you look at this verse, we're faced with two possibilities and only two possibilities. You either conform to the societal norms or the cultural norms that are around you, or you transform. Those are the only two options. What I want us to notice in this passage also is that where the transformation begins. He said, 
Be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. Our transformation doesn't begin external of us. It begins internal. Our continued transformation in life continues only if we do are committed to it internally. Have you ever had a conversation with somebody or known somebody that continually struggles with some problem and you heard the statement or maybe maybe made the statement, I can't help you if you won't help yourself. You know what we're telling people or what's being said when that statement is made is simple. No change is going to come in your life until you decide to make change. You can have the greatest network of friends, the greatest network of systems, the greatest elders in the world that the world has ever seen, but until we decide to transform internally, it's not going to happen. If you squeeze an orange, if I had an orange this morning and I squeezed it out, what would come out of that orange? Obviously, orange juice. Pretty simple. If I squeeze that orange, I'm not going to get grape juice. I'm not going to get any other kind of fruit juice. I'm going to get orange juice because we know that's what happens. In Romans chapter 8 and verse 13, it says, For if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of your body, ye shall live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. Whenever you think about mortifying the deeds, those things that are opposed to Christ and His will, It doesn't happen anywhere until it happens in your mind. The question is, is what happens when we're squeezed? What happens when the pressures of life start clamping down on us? What comes out when the stress in life starts pushing down on us? Does cursing, bitterness, anger, or sorrow, are that's what, is that what comes out? As the Lord transforms our mind, the objective and the goal is for His fruit to come out. In Galatians chapter 5 and verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit, excuse me, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, Meekness or goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, against such there is no law. Whenever we have the pressures in life put upon us, these are the fruits which should come out. This is what should come from our lives. When we are committed to transforming, we understand. That it's not instantaneous. That it doesn't happen overnight and that it's a lifelong process. That we are constantly growing and transforming, but not conforming. As with any fruit tree, 
Those things require different things. They require things such as nurturing. The Bible says in 2 Timothy 3 and verse 16, All Scripture is given by the inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. This is the source of our nurturing. God's will for our life is what nurtures our transformation. It's what nurtures our growth. It's what changes us from whenever pressures apply us and anger and bitterness and cursings come out to when pressures apply to us, the great things such as love and meekness and temperance come forth. When we take his principles and internalize them and make them who we are. Another aspect of developing fruit and growing fruit is that of pruning, cutting things back so that they can produce more fruit. In John chapter 15 and verse 2, it says, Every branch of me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. And every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, that it may bring forth more fruit. That word purgeth means prunes. The concept of cutting something back so that it produces more is not something that is easy for us to understand unless you've been in horticulture or you've seen those things and you've seen the blessings of what happens when you trim something back and it produces better. But that's exactly what Jesus Christ is teaching here. Sometimes we need discipline through God's Word. Sometimes we may need a friend or an elder or a deacon to come to us and say, hey, you need to rein that in. We need to be pruned back so that we can produce more fruit and better fruit. In Psalms chapter 25 and verse 15, David says, Mine eyes are ever towards the Lord. David wrote a large portion of the book of Psalms. And if you read from a historical perspective, First and Second Samuel and in the Chronicles about David, you see a lot of David's life. But it's in the 70, I think 78 Psalms that he wrote that you get to see David for who he was. And that relationship that he had with God. And the statements where he could say, mine eyes are always towards God. Or he could say, Lord, enter my heart. See where I'm failing. Test my reins. I'm always fascinated by reading those psalms that David wrote. Because many times I look at the questions that David presents to God. And I feel like a fool. Because I know that I wouldn't want to ask God those same questions. Whenever he says, try my reins, see what I'm made of. Are we confident in our relationship with God? You know why David was that way? Because David was consistent. David messed up. There's no doubt about it. One of the greatest displays of consistency in David's life was whenever his son Absalom was trying to kill him. Absalom was trying to overthrow him as king and was going to kill him, and David's on the run. It talks about them going up a mountain, and David stops so that he could praise God and worship God. 
In this moment of trial and tribulation with his life on the line, his own flesh and blood trying to murder him, what does David do? He stops and praises God and worships God. Why? Because that's what David had always done. When David's son died, what was he doing? He got up and he went and praised God. (laughs) One of the greatest examples and illustrations that we have in the Bible. Another great example we have is Jesus Christ. In Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 8, it says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. He is a Savior that has always been consistent. He's been consistent in His love. He's been consistent in His willingness to submit Himself to death. He's consistent in His willingness to be a mediator between us and God. He's always been consistent. In John chapter 15 and verse 4, Christ tells the disciples there, Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine. No more can ye except ye abide in me. That word abide means enduring without yielding, to continue in a place, to remain stable. What's all, what's wrapped up in that word are a lot of things. Abiding and spending time together. A day-to-day interaction. I believe that many times we fail that and we kind of pop in on God whenever it's convenient for us. You know, if I treated my marriage the way we treat God sometimes, it would be an extremely awkward marriage, don't you think? If I say I abide with my wife, but I only talk to her once a week, I only communicate with her once a week, it would be a very odd relationship, wouldn't it? I believe there would be some resentment that would come from my wife because of that. When we say we abide, and what Christ is admonishing us to do is to be wholly dependent on God, hence the reference to the vine. You cannot produce, you cannot bear fruit without the vine, that God is the vine. You're not going to produce fruit apart from that. And to abide in Him is to be consistent in Him. In James chapter 4, James says, There draw nigh unto God, and He will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Reading that passage, let me ask you a question. Have you ever been in a time or situation in your life where you felt distant from God? And in those times, was it ever God's fault? When we distance ourselves from God, it's nobody's fault but our own. The desire and the need that we have for spiritual discipline and growth requires that we consistently draw closer to Him. That we consistently go to Him in times of need, in times of praise, in times of wonderful things happening to us. And whenever we do feel that distance, we can always look at our own lives and go, it was because of me. 
that I'm not close to God. Whenever you think of people like Moses who were consistent, when you go back to the book of Genesis and God called Moses, Moses had some reservations about going before Pharaoh and God gave him supplication so that he could go before Pharaoh, that he could get his people and bring them out of Egypt. But almost immediately leaving Egypt, what did Israel begin to do? What did the Hebrews begin to do? Complain. If there was one thing that they were really good at and they were really consistent in was complaining. They immediately began to complain and say, you know, you just brought us out to the desert to die. We'd have been better off being slaves back in Egypt. Now, I'm going to be honest. When my children complain a lot, it's not good for them. I tend to get a little angry. (laughs) Moses remained consistent. Always looking at God's plan and objective for his people. Once again, not saying that Moses didn't have faults. He didn't make it into the promised land because of one of his faults. But at the end of it all, he was happy because he had achieved his objective, which was to get the children of Israel, to God's land that he had promised them. The New Testament refers this to many times to as our walk. In Colossians chapter 1 and verse 10, it says that you might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. You'll find multiple verses throughout the New Testament referring to our walk. Are we consistent in what we're doing and following after Jesus and following after His principles and following after His will and representing the gospel which He died for? That's consistency. To walk is to persevere, to continue on. Whenever we look at our lives and the simplest things tend to throw us off track. Tend to distract us. Because we're not being consistent. We're not taking care of our walk. We're not minding the business of our conduct and the minding the business of our walk before others and before God. In the New Testament, you see passages like this time and time again. Continue in the grace of God. Continue in His kindness. Continue in your faith. Continue to live in Him. Continue in faith, love, and holiness. Continue in what you have learned. Continue in Him. And we could go on and on and on talking about seeing verses that talk about continuing in or walking in. But all of those things point to the same thing, and that's we have got to be consistent in those things. Now, if you're like me, you probably think that consistency is one of your biggest failures. And it is for me. It is one of the things that I've probably struggled with more in my life than any other thing. And that struggle has led to so many other things going wrong in my life. The inability to remain 
consistent. And allowing the simplest things to derail my walk with God. To set me off on a path that I don't need to go. And at the end of it all, we have admonishments throughout the New Testament reminding us that if you continue in these things, you have the blessings of God. You have the blessings of Christ. You have a home of eternity with Him in heaven. And some minor thing comes in and I'm down the rabbit trail. How is your consistency this morning? Are you easily distracted by the minor things in life? In Psalms 119, David said, Thy faithfulness is unto all generations. Thou hast established the earth, and it abideth. They continue this day according to thine ordinances, for all are thy servants. Unless thy law had been my delights, I should then have perished in mine affliction. I will never forget thy precepts, for with them thou hast quickened me. I am thine, save me, for I have sought thy precepts. At the end of all of it, David gives this beautiful homage to God and everything that he has done. And everything that he is. And he looks at the earth and everything in it. And he goes, it's all yours. We are all your servants. And his quiet request at the end is simple. I am thine. Save me. Save me because I have remained steadfast in thy precepts. Looking at our discipleship and what makes us more effective, what makes us stronger and develops growth in us is discipline. When we look and examine our lives and we examine our commitment, what are we committed to the most? And what is most important? How is your transformation going? Are you still that small tree that's just budding? Are you the large oak tree that still needs tending and pruning? How is your walk this morning? This morning we want to offer you an invitation, and that's to become a part of the body of Christ. We talked about transformation this morning and the need for transformation because of what Jesus Christ did for you. There is no transformation apart from Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. If you want to begin a transformation, it has to be in Jesus Christ. Paul said in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 27, For as many of you as been baptized into Christ, has put on Christ. That's where your transformation begins. If you have not taken the opportunity to submit yourself to Jesus Christ and begin your transformation, we can help you do that this morning by putting on Jesus Christ through the waters of baptism. Sometimes we have struggles in life. Sometimes we're not consistent. Sometimes we fail in our transformation. 
Sometimes our commitment wavers and we just need strength. We need help. We need prayers. If you find yourself in either of these categories, we ask you to come forward as we sing the song that's been selected.